0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 96, Restoring the Apollo Mission Control Center. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So if you're following along with our episodes, you'll know that we've been revisiting some of the historic Apollo missions in celebration of their 50th anniversaries. And we're coming up on a big one. The 50th anniversary of the mission that put the boots of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the surface of the moon. There's a lot of work being done in celebration of this anniversary. And today we're going to be discussing one of the more ambitious projects, restoring the historic Apollo Mission Control Center. This includes the Mission Operations Control Room 2, more commonly known here as Moker 2, the Visitor's Viewing Room, and the Simulation Control Room, and a room called the Bat Cave. Super cool. And we'll get into what that is. Many human spaceflight missions were controlled out of this center, most of the Gemini and Apollo missions, including Apollo 11, the first landing of humans on the moon. The building where all of these live, are within the the Johnson Space Center, is called Building 30, which was given National Historic Landmark status in 1985. It's been toured over the years, hundreds of people walking in and out, and through that came more wear and tear on this national icon. Soon, it just wasn't the same as it used to be. Now we're nearing the end of a project spanning six years to restore this historic landmark to look exactly as it did in July 1969, capturing the essence of what it was like five decades ago during some of the greatest moments in human space exploration. Today we'll be talking more in depth about the journey thus far to restore this historic landmark with Sandra Tetley and Adam Graves. Sandra is a historic preservation officer and real property officer here at the Johnson Space Center and Adam is the lead for the project based with the company Gravitate. These folks are at the forefront of this monumental project, set to be complete later this month. A big part of this project is allowing visitors to experience a moment in Apollo history not only by being able to see this restored setting, but by playing audio from Apollo 11 that had been recently digitized. Houston, we have a podcast host, Pat Ryan, takes over towards the end of this episode to chat with Ben Feist, a web developer, among other things, who helped process this recently recovered audio from Apollo Mission Control and bring it to life as part of this experience. And this is a very exciting topic, so let's jump right into it with Mrs. Sandra Tetley and Dr. Adam Graves first, and then wrap up with Pat's conversation with Ben Feist. Enjoy.
1: K minus five, County. Mark. We'll the there
2: she goes. we have a podcast.
0: Sandra and Adam, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this great project that's happening with the Apollo Mission Control Center.
3: Great. Thank you for having us. We're excited.
0: Really appreciate it. So we're in the final stretch of this ambitious project, um, you know, being set to complete later this month. We're aiming for June. Hopefully that sticks. How are you guys feeling right now in the home stretch?
3: Uh, Pretty good. We're on schedule. um there's a few things that have come up, um just little you know little things uh, coordination mainly, but we're we're feeling good. We're excited we're starting to come together
0: and with a project this long, you know, we're talking six years, you know, this is it's is very exciting for this to all come together. Of course, there's going to be things along the way that change, but this is this is very cool. Mm-hmm. Um I wanted to start by taking it all the way back, really, but six years ago, you know, how did this how did this all start? When did we start really considering? You know, let's let's restore this historic landmark.
3: Um, So back in uh, March of 2013, I applied for a grant with the the National Park Service Heritage Program. And um, that's because Building 30 is a national historic landmark. And so what I applied for was $5,000 to do um, some sort of video or something for the visitors to kind of experience the moon landing and the regional director of the Park Service called me and was very interested in the project and so they came down and talked to me and we showed them uh, the Mission Control and in, in its state of disrepair and so they offered us, um, offered me $20,000 to do a historic furnishings report and then they would put in the other $20,000 and so um, they had it commissioned and what that is a historic furnishings report is a very in-depth detailed analysis of the Mission Control Center and uh, from what it should have been or what it was to how it would everything we would need to do to restore it and so from there uh, we held a workshop with the park service to um, kind of bring in the stakeholders and um, that was the the beginning of it Um, they felt very strongly that It is of such um, world importance as a historical site that they felt very strongly that um, we needed to restore it. So that's how it started. And
0: it definitely is because let's go right into that. You know, what was the condition? What were we looking at? What were the rooms and and the the elements that we were looking at, um, you know, before we even started restoring it
3: so the room um, about in the mid-90s after they moved to building 30 south um, the the room was just unoccupied um, it was the the consoles were not lit up or anything there was nothing on the consoles you know no documents or anything um, and it was uh, open to whoever could get into 30 could go and sit at the consoles and uh, dial the phones press the buttons you know do whatever they wanted to visitors uh, from space center used to win in the viewing room And then level nine tours and uh, VIP tours would go on the floor. And so um, it was not really ever maintained um, as far as upkeep. They did do some maintenance when chairs would break or something like that. But it was really um, not kept in any sort of um, fashion that it should have been.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it was kind of just people can go in and do whatever they wanted, but it wasn't really treated as a important place in history right and that's where this kind of came in as we want this to look and feel and be treated as an important place in history so when you're talking about this room uh you know people coming in and and touching what is the room
3: so the room it's the uh the we call it the apollo mission control center there's actually two mission control centers Moker one which is on the second floor and then Moker two was on the third floor and then so the mission control center is, includes the um, the Moker, which is the Mission Operations Control Room. That's the room with the consoles. Then the Visitor's Viewing Room, or VIP room, which was the seating that was behind uh, the room and had the big glass windows so so par- um, the family members and dignitaries would sit in there and watch what was going on in the Moker. Then the simulation control room, which is where the simulators would be, um, and they're the ones that when they would test and do simulations, <clears throat> they were the ones that would um you know send them all the error messages and all the the problems and so that was the simulation room and then the back cave is actually the room behind the large summary display screens that included all of the projectors and the timing systems and the, the clocks at the very top and so that we call that the bat cave because it's all black mm-hmm. it's so the- those those four rooms um are what we're, we we term the mission control center
0: Okay, the least attractive room visually is the coolest sounding one, the Batcave. It is cool. All right, so those are all the elements to to really capture... Uh, this part of history and these were all the things that you were looking at now obviously uh, we're, we're years into the project all of the you know the proposals the written the things you wrote down of here's what we want to address those are th- those started to happen um you know talk about that process where where we went from a proposal what do we need to fix to let's start restoring this apollo control center
3: um y- yeah it didn't work quite that easily oh, of course, um, of yeah course. so we um there was a lot of stakeholders that wanted um, to control the project. And um, from flight operations, external relations, Space Center Houston. And um, the, so as a National Historic Landmark, in order to restore a, a nas- the National Historic Landmark, uh, it needs to be done under the Secretary of the Interior standards for restoration. And so, of course, none of those people have those qualifications. So um, I pushed to make sure it got under my contract and that's where adam comes in and so we we did a lot of work on um, the historic furnishings report um, gave us the basis and from that we they did the in-depth research that they needed to do and do you want to go into that and tell them all yeah that? of
1: course um for, so yeah that you're right the historic furnishings report really laid that foundation for you know just kind of initial assessment um you know i know when i went in the very first time you know, you get goosebumps, and then <laughs> and, you know I'm there. They're on a job, so okay, I got to get over all of this and, and start looking around and, and uh, you know look at the condition, and, and it was pretty rough. And so thank goodness we had the f- the furnishings report to to start from. But then, you know, then you start uh, identifying some of the holes in that furnishings report, um, looking around at you know some of the materials that has been replaced over time um and we then we hit the libraries and the archives and the photographs and the video and, and get all of this information and then we we did uh interviews with how many uh how many uh I think there
3: were about 25
1: 25 mm-hmm. uh flight controllers we did interviews with in the room um and and uh learned you know what they did and you know what buttons on the consoles were lit most or they interacted with most and um you know then we take what they say even about lighting um, in the room you know what was the overall sense of lighting is it darker was it lighter you know all these specific details so that we can reconstruct that um, when we get when we get to that point when we you know at that point we weren't sure you know are we even going to be funded to do this this work we just know there's a lot of work that needs to be done and there's a lot of details that um, have to go back to the the original because you know that room was used after Apollo and and used you know through shuttle and or for a few missions in shuttle and and like that so we had to kind of go backwards in time and and also verify some of the things that the flight controllers you know that recollection is different from you know reality in in some cases so you know where where we could um we used photographs and videos and where we couldn't the interviews came in you know really handy so Um, Yeah, just extensive, extensive research to get all that done.
0: Yeah, really. This this report was capturing what was wrong. You know, what were some of the things you needed to fix? What has changed over time? Because, like you said, things this the room was in use until the 90s, the early 90s or mid 90s, Mm -hmm. I believe. Mid 90s. Mid 90s. So, um, you know, things obviously change over time. But really, trying to get a sense of what it was like. And correct me if I'm wrong. You're restoring it back to the Apollo era, to what it looked like in the Apollo era. That's the idea. Those are the those are the interviews, the images that you really want to capture. What did it look like in the 60s? Right, that's exactly mm-hmm.
1: right. Yeah, right. we're looking to to actually even more specific Apollo 11 during landing hmm. uh, and EVA and and recovery. So um, we want everything to be specific to that that even that shorter time period. Um, of course, the consoles um, we're doing those Apollo 15 configuration and the lighting on the buttons and the monitors and and everything is is. Um, we were shooting for Apollo 15 is that was the, that's a piece of history that we wanted to preserve. The The flight controllers indicated that was a, a very important uh, time for technology in the room during the Apollo era. So this was the height of the, the technology of Apollo um, and wanted to preserve some of that. So the, the consoles will be a little bit different in terms of the Apollo era, but everything else is 11. What's on the console itself is 11. What's on the screens is 11. Um, everything, lighting levels, everything.
0: Yeah, you get a feel for it. But it's, it sounds like what the flight controlers really wanted was, even during Apollo 11, there was still some work to be done to get to the level that they wanted, that peak of, of technology right. and during Apollo 15. And yes, I can understand why they would want that to be highlighted. Mm-hmm. But the moment itself being Apollo 11, obviously, you know, one of the biggest moments in human history. Exactly. <laughs> so, right. So yeah, you want those on the screens. Exactly. Alright, so, so how about this process that you're talking about of, of, of tracking all of the changes over time of what needs to be updated, of these interviews, these photos, how long did that process take?
1: Well, in some ways, it's still ongoing. We, wow. We learn learn something new almost every day, and um, you know, some someone will come out of the woodworks that used to work here that says, "Oh, I have this," or I, "I, you know, here's a document that maybe you've never seen before." So, um, really, since the beginning to to present day, and I'm, I, just, you know, I imagine for the next couple months even we'll still see some last minute things that really could
0: add to the experience okay so then what about to actually start restoring things now you you know you've identified some things we want you know the consoles to be Apollo 15 you want these on the screens so what about actually getting these pieces these historic pieces to the moment in history that you want to get them to where do you go what's where do all these pieces go
3: so um So Adam put together an excellent team, basically, and um, we... We went out now, and the Consul Sphere is an interesting um, story because somebody had referred them to me to redo the consoles when we were kind of first gathering and, and getting things going. And then also, you'll have to tell them your story. Hmm. But so we selected them because they have expertise. They have actual Apollo-era consoles from Moker One.
0: This is the Kansas Cosmosphere? The, uh, right, okay. the Kansas Cosmosphere. Okay.
3: And so they um, are very familiar with it, and they know... Um, you know they're familiar with the details and the design, and and they have the expertise to restore those. So they were chosen to restore all of the consoles, and so they've taken them up to Kansas to to their shop, and they've been working on them for uh, over a year now, and so they're expected to come back. But tell you can tell them your yeah, story.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, So yeah, they head, head down the right path of you know how how do we move from this research and and get more research and get the right people involved. Um, you know we we had to put a team together not one person is, is big enough or smart enough to figure this, this monster out. So, um, you know, so, so, yeah, she had heard of the Cosmosphere, but I hadn't, and I had some ideas of, of some of the experts that, that might be, you know, we might reach out to for this project. And, but I, you know, I got to thinking one day, I think I just woke up with this idea. I was like, okay, I'm, I, well, I've seen the Apollo 13 movie and I know I've seen in that movie, a mission control room. So how did they build this and th- so i went to the movie and i look through all the credits and i find the, the the art designer the production designer and i i contact I'm like i start looking on the internet i'm like okay how do you, how am i going to get in touch with this michael Cornblith guy and um so i could i looked for, you know, I found an agent page and, you know, that came up with nothing. And I was like, okay, maybe he's on Facebook. (laughs) So I went on Facebook and I, he was, I found, found the guy and I sent him a Facebook message and, and the next day he responded. And uh, he's like, this is great that you're doing this. And um you know i'd be you know i'd be happy to help if i can but i can't i can't believe that it. it's been 20 years since the <laughs> apollo 13 movie and but this is amazing and but he, he indicated that he had used the cosmosphere to to build some of those consoles so i was like all right great now now i can go hunt this out so that was that was one part of the team uh the for the consoles and then you know we have this big amazing room full of full of other things that aren't consoles so right um, <clears throat> I just knew, you know, putting this team together, that it was it was important to use people in Texas to get this work done, um, local people that, you know, everyone has a story of, you know, from Houston that, that involves uh, Johnson Space Center. So, I reached out to the historic societies in Dallas and Austin and San Antonio and Houston, um, and had conversations with a, a lot of these folks that have done, you know, the, the historic courthouses in Texas. Um, and which was very, you know, in a way, with the materials, the carpets, wallpapers, things like that, things that I knew were kind of similar. Um, just started vetting through those list of people, and and finally found the Sterna-Buchek team here in Houston that uh, that could that has done a lot of that work. So so we got with them, and and they have a number of subcontractors as well that that kind of rounded out the rest of the team.
0: Okay. Wow. All right. So that's that's a ton of research because I think I'm trying to put, get my mind around all of the different elements that need to come together you know just the cosmosphere you said was the consoles then you got all these other components you got the rooms you got the you're talking windows ceilings floors carpets Yeah, we're
1: talking carpenters and painters and and all sorts of things yeah that that have experience doing historic preservation work yes which is even trickier
0: (laughs) in texas right yeah you got all these different like requirements and things you want to do so so when did this process start you know you're 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 searching for all the right people to do it now. Now, now you're in the middle of let's go and actually restore some of these elements. When did this start?
3: Uh, uh, well, the actual work didn't even really start until, what, October of 2018.
0: Oh, wow, I mean, very recently. Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, because of the funding and because of all the politics involved, um, we took an 18-month project. We'd estimated 18 to 24 months, and we've, we're cramming it into about nine months. Wow. And we are really literally cramming. But like Adam said, um, it's been real interesting. Um, we can tell you the story of the carpet and the wallpaper, which are probably, um, and the ceiling tile is probably the most interesting th- stories that we have. Please. When we were doing research on the carpet, um, we we didn't know. It had already been recarpeted and re so we didn't have any records of what it was or, or any of that. Um, we could go back and we could look at some of the original designs, but you know, it's difficult to tell what exactly it was. But we were looking under uh, a P-tube station, and the P-tube stations, you know, are the ones that have the pipes under the floor, and they had not been moved when they recarpeted, and so the original carpet was under that wall, under the P-tube station. Uh So they were able to cut a piece out, and it was what's called woven carpet, which they don't do anymore, but they took it to um, the carpet people, um, not Mohawk, uh, Shaw carpet, it was Shaw carpet, and they took their current tufted way that they do carpet and um, analyzed the colors and analyzed the pattern and by adding an additional yarn into their current method of, weaving, of, of a creating carpet they were able to recreate the carpet and they went through about 15 to 20 different um, ways that they did it in order to get it with the pattern and the, um, the texture that we wanted. And so that was really cool to do that. And when you look at them, it's, it's just remarkable what they've done. So the same thing with the wallpaper. We were in there one day and um, the finishes guy noticed that they had removed a fire extinguisher off the wall. And behind that fire extinguisher was the original wallpaper. <sighs> so by going back to the original plans, they found the original uh, manufacturer of the wallpaper. They went back to that company, which had been purchased. They went back to the purchase company. They actually found the roller in their warehouse, and they were able to use that roller. It had been retooled, so our current uh, recreated wallpapers a little bit uh, has a greater definition than, than what was on the walls. But it's just remarkable and so they were able to recreate it after you know about 15 20 tries of getting the color and the pattern because it's a two-colored method and that wallpaper has been recreated in the moker so it's um it's really cool and the and the ceiling tile same thing they found a piece of ceiling tile in one of the old phone booths in the lobby of 30 (laughs) And so they were able to go back, and get a piece of Armstrong tile, but they had to hand stamp the whole pattern on each of those tiles. It took four different stamps, four different ways to hand stamp. So that's a level of detail that they're going to. That I mean, it will be remarkably, um, it looked just like it did in 1969.
0: And the places you're finding these elements are astounding. Mm-hmm. It's you're, You don't just go to the floor and look at the carpet and be like, all right, let's 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 match this. You're finding it in the weirdest right. places. Right,
3: It's just, yeah, it's really a little bit of, you know, the hand of the Lord in it the, to find <laughs> these little details. But, right. but that really will make it great because whereas before we were just going to use the same wallpaper and then uh, recreate the carpet um, from the uh, what the flight controllers were telling us. And so, um, this now, we have no doubt. I mean, it's It's going to be just a recreation of the original.
0: So a lot of it, it seems like the restoration pro project really is getting everything t- with the original carpeting. You know, the, this is what the carpeting was This is what the wallpaper was, you know, the, the consoles are a little bit different, Apollo 15 era, but it, it's really getting all these different elements. Um, Together to make sure that history is captured, but you also talked about another another part, which was you want the screens to show Apollo Eleven, uh, uh, what what they look like with Apollo Eleven. So not only are you talking about getting you know materials, but you're talking about getting information now from Apollo Eleven. So where did you go to find that?
3: So that's Adam's forte. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it, it's been a difficult process because. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're really trying to hone in on, on, a, on a few different events um, during, you know, descent and landing on the moon, uh, during the EVA, during recovery, um, you know, those sorts of things are, you know, the video and camera work that was done in the MOCR was, was interested in the people that were in mission control, which ultimately that's what we're trying to get through our project as well is, is highlight the, the men in, that worked in this room, and um, so there's, there's so much that we're missing from those time periods because there's not just a camera locked on the screens, right? So we have to look at video and see oh, that, that camera just moved across the screen. Let's, let's pause it and see if we can figure out what that is. And it's dark or blurry or, or whatever. And, and so uh, just a ton of research to try to piece these little pieces of photograph and camera together to, okay, during, during descent and landing, what's on this on screen one what's on screen two what's on screen three and uh, just just piecing all that together and and now we know and um
3: and even the clocks so the clocks you know what was on the clocks have to match what was on the screens what was on the consoles
1: right and we're not talking just still imagery of something on a screen that we're going to be presenting it's it's going to be working so moving. there'll be a there'll be a large map on the middle screen and and you'll see um the CM moving across the screen, and it's timed up with the clocks that are that are above it, with the GET times and things like that. So oh. it's not just going to be a, a picture, a still picture. It's going to be a real living room.
0: Yeah, you're not capturing a moment in history. You're capturing a length of time. You're, you're and all this data has to synchronize. The clocks have to match where the CM, the the command module, was at this time and mm-hmm. this. Bl- That's
1: exactly That's right. right. And even in the oh, viewing room, wow. we have 1960s TVs that were were retrofitting, and they'll be playing CBS footage in the viewing room. That's that's also time to landing and, and EVA and things like that.
0: Right, and that's actually this is actually an important thing because w- when we go back to before the restoration project, what the what the uh, Apollo Mission Control Center really looked like. I mean, that wasn't really. You, you had some B-roll playing on the screens up front, but really there was nothing on the on the actual monitors of the consoles. The the buttons were not lighting up. It was just a. It was just left. It right. was There's just no left. no audio. There. Right. Yeah, no. We're gonna
3: have audio. So we'll have everything synced up. So where, when you walk into the viewing room, you're going to think you're back on July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine. That's uh, our goal. Exact,
1: oh, that exactly, exactly the sights and sounds that mm-hmm. were on that day.
0: Now, some of the things I I, I really loved because I, I used to give tours of uh, the Apollo Mission Control. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually one of my first intern jobs, and then my first like real job when I came on was giving the tour and capturing these these uh, historic. Um, historic even artifacts within the room and there's some that i always love to highlight they had a a, a mirror from the apollo 13 mission that the right. crew presented to mm-hmm. the flight controllers saying it reflects the true heroes uh of of this mission really the controllers on the ground working through all different scenarios to rescue the crew right. and um there was a plaque on the wall a flag what what are where are all these elements coming back are they being restored are, are they going to go back to their original places what's happening there
1: they are coming back, um, and it's important to us for you know for the restoration to preserve you know everything that we can that was in the room mm-hmm. um, through shuttle and Apollo and all this and you know. We say we we make new carpet or make new wallpaper. That's true. That's a lot of it. But we've also preserved in place um, some of those elements as well that mm-hmm. we could. And, and the consoles are not being repainted. You know, they still show history. You know, there's still some rubs on them. We've we've we pre- preserved them. We have wax, and and they look nicer, but they're not. You know, the history is still there. Um, so you know that's that's the goal throughout. And so you you know the plaques you talk about, they they'll be back in there. Uh, when you look on the wall you'll see uh, you know you could hold up a picture and see you know apollo 11 picture and on the wall the, the plaques that should be there are there in their appropriate locations uh, but down the hallway or in other locations will be the proclamations and there'll be the the shuttle plaques and things like that 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 belong in that room
0: wow okay this is i'm very excited <laughs> i actually can't wait to step foot in there and actually that's a that's a good uh, segue into the next part was, you know, you mentioned when you actually walk into the room, you're going to be part living this moment through history. What will it look like whenever the room is ready and people can start um, viewing it? Because, because you know, like one of the one of the things that were happening before, as you mentioned, Sandra, was people could just walk in and do whatever they want. What's going to happen whenever we're after this restoring project?
3: So, um, the best place to view the mission control center will be from the visitors viewing room. Okay. So the plan is to have everyone, even employees, to go up the visitors lobby and the visitors staircase into that alcove that goes into the back of the viewing room. And then when you when you step into there, you will be stepping back into time. And then the the seating will have the best seating because you'll, you know, we're going to have the clocks working and the summary display screens will be working. So sitting in those seats will give you the best view of everything happening. And when you walk in, you'll hear the chatter from the flight controllers and the, the command module and the astronauts, and, and you'll, you'll be hearing all that as we begin to count down. And then um, the when the show starts, you know, at some point, uh, like a docent or whatever, or just an employee, when the show starts, then we'll begin at the descent and landing, and then we'll, we're going to land, and then, you know, you'll, you'll experience all that and 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 a very important part that we're continuing to fight even right now is that during that landing and landing on the moon, there was no video at all. The only things the flight controllers had to look at was what was on the screens, um, their screens on their consoles, and then what was being shown through the computer where the um, the you know the land command module the lander was. Mm-hmm. So that's a very important historical element that we're trying to show is that, these men landed on the moon just given this data even with the alarms going off and all that you know they were landing that so you're going to hear that and you're going to see that and then uh, from that after they land we'll go to the first steps and we'll walk through the first steps and then we're going to do where nixon called the moon from the white house and that's a lot That's a very a lot of people don't even know that that really happened but he called them after planting the flag and so they're standing there with the flag and then recovery when they're on the um the, the hornet coming back and one of the cool tell them the story about the upside down camera that's a great story
1: oh yeah um so on the very rightmost screen if you're sitting in the <clears throat> visitors viewing room um which is all also restored and restored seating and 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 ashtrays in the front and and (laughs) you know you'll you'll be in history in there as well uh so you'll look and see uh when the, the very first um video appears in in mission control after landing um neil armstrong is coming down the ladder and uh it it turns out that 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 video is upside down um so there's a little bit of communication here, a little bit of chatter as you're experiencing this to, to flip the, 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 view, the view, the vision, mm-hmm. right? The, right. The screen uh, upside down or right side up, sorry. Um,
3: so yeah, it's very cool. I mean, you know, because you're watching it and then the flight controllers are going, your, your image is upside down. And so then they flip it right side up. And so we're gonna show that. And then, then you begin to see it, it, it clears up a little bit because it goes from one satellite to another. And then it clears up and then you see him step on the moon. So it's that's those little elements like that, that people may not remember, or may not have experienced, you know, if they were young, those are really cool elements. Because it shows, you know, we're really trying to focus on the flight controllers and what they did as far as the missions, not just astronauts, which we always, you know, hear. And so those are really cool elements that we'll be able to to show in the visitor experience. Wow!
0: So so it's not only restoring all of these elements and making it look and feel like it did in the '60s. Now you're adding this this show. Really, you get to sit down and experience it. Is it an ever looping sort of thing? Is that is that how it's going to be, or is it you sit down and press play and live this moment through this moment?
3: Right. You sit down and press play. I see. Yeah. It won't be going all the time. It will be, um, you know, it'll be set to where. If you go in with a group, you can get it to start, and then it go, you goes through the whole thing till recovery, and then the mission accomplished. You know where they celebrated in in the moker and um, and then it will reset back to a time that you, you know people can take pictures, and it'll stay at that that static state and then it will then it will recycle we have a very sophisticated show controller it's gonna be be very cool yeah
0: i want to be one of and even the lights you know
3: the lights are going to change the way they were and and Hmm. the quiet sign quiet please sign will come on and it's it's going to be just like you're there that's what our goal is Mm
0: -hmm. wow how did you how do all these elements come together um Lots well,
3: of experts. I was going to say. <laughs> a whole lot of experts.
0: Yeah, you yeah. must have. I mean, this was part of your research then, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Was so, Yes, my research and the other teammates' research and um, visiting the room over and over and over again and and finding this detail and that detail and discussing it with other experts and discussing it with flight controllers. And it's just, a, you know, a, a lot of work. Yeah. Sure. A lot
3: of photos, a lot of video. A lot of photos. yeah. yeah.
1: A lot now, of work. It's so funny when, I, when someone shows me a photo now. Um, I'm just like. Oh yeah, I've I have seen that one before. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I haven't been hit up for a, a new one lately. It's been a while since someone said, "Hey, have you seen this?" And yeah. I said, "No, actually, where where did that come from?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's probably in, it's probably all you dream about anymore. Just for how much you think about it, it's just in your dreams now. All these different details. Uh, so so you this was actually a good point you brought up was the visiting the uh, visitors viewing room mm-hmm. seats are going to be restored. That's actually part of the project. So not only are you going to sit and be able to experience what's in front of you, but exist in a part of history as well. Yes. With the mm-hmm. you know p- quiet please signs coming up and everything. Right. Um, you mentioned other rooms too. There's there's the Bat Cave, which I thought was a super cool name, mm-hmm. and then the Simulation Control Room. Are they, are those viewable from the room how are those being restored? And how can you access those?
1: Yeah. The sim control room is actually a neat one. Um, we were able to, we, we, we discussed among the group and, and since we really are creating this live experience in the mission, uh, the moker itself, we wanted to present more of a, uh, preserve in place, like exactly what it, you know, artifacts in the sim control room. Mm-hmm. So the consoles there, um, Everything is, all the elements, all the components, the monitors, everything are being uh, Apollo-era stuff, like the real things that we've, we've put back together in their original locations. It's not lit. Um, it's it's the actual artifacts. Um, so everything in there is, is very unique to that time, period. it's just a little capsule in that room. And you will be able to see that room uh, from the, the visitor viewing area through the window. There's I think when we started this project there was a curtain and and things like that right i remember the the way so you couldn't really the room behind the curtain yeah right the room Mm -hmm. behind the curtain so you'll be able to see it'll be open um lit it'll be uh the the lighting above will be lit so you can see the consoles in there
3: and we also are doing um a little remembrance i guess of the uh, recovery operations control room so those are the other two windows that are are painted out We're gonna put glass that has embedded in it photographs so that when you walk by or when you see it, you know, you can see it also from the viewing room, that you'll look like you're looking into the recovery room because it was not just the flight controllers uh, by themselves. They each had a big back room. And so by by showing off the sim control room and the Roker, that is representative of the back room and all the other people that may not have been at a console but it was all the support people and so it was important for us to tell those stories as well
0: right it was bigger than Mm -hmm. just the the, what you're seeing in front of you in that room there was all kinds of support and that still exists for mission control even today you know you can you can come and look at the international space station flight control room and yes there's everyone looking at all these different elements but they have back rooms as well they still have that support Mm -hmm. you still got the simulations in other rooms so it's it's very much still a part of the flat operations culture, even today. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So the Bat Cave, uh, also the summer, right. summary display projection room, is the official name. Right. Not not the fun name. Uh, right. <laughs> we we can use it. That's fine. Yeah. Opinion. We'll go Bat Cave. <laughs> There's a lot of bat jokes we can we can do there. But um, but yeah, that that room is actually um, going to be a little bit of a museum. We're going to move some of the old uh, large artifacts that that were in there. Um, cabinets and the edivore projectors and and things like that that used to be in the room you know that did all the work they're not as elegant as as some of the other things that we're doing but but we are we have those things we're cleaning them we're putting them back in place right where they were so you know if if uh, if the time ever came that anyone could ever go back there and and look around um, they would see some of those original elements to the room Um, and the mirrors
3: are still there
0: the mirrors are still there oh Mm -hmm. yeah the
1: the projection system that we're installing will actually use the same uh methods that the the old i-4s do whether where where we're um projecting off of those large mirrors onto the screens and backlighting the screens so and those those new cameras new projectors will be in the same location as the old i-4s and and like that so um it's 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 all going to be set up exactly how it was just with some new technology back there
0: okay yeah. So yeah, you're not getting the old style, I guess, projector. You're, you're updating it a little bit, but the the technique, the a lot of the mirrors and and, and capabilities of the back cave will mm-hmm. be will be That's preserved. That's exactly right. right. Mm-hmm. Will that be um, accessible by a museum tour or just something you could do here? If you know.
3: no, it's it's not accessible at this point. I see. We kind of uh, ultimately would like to make it um, like an engineering tour to see how it all works because it really is, um, it was state of the art at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but the projection, the lights of the projector, projectors are so strong that it's, it presents a security, a safety issue if you go back there when they're lit. So we haven't, you know, figured that out yet, but ultimately we would like it to, to be on tour because it will have the original fours and the huge equipment racks that supported all the projectors and the um, the slide the slide projector that was the glass and, and silver slides that would project so it'll be cool but it, right now it's not on tour
1: you have a special tour for your your very high level nerds that like that kind
0: of yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> see I don't even consider myself a high level nerd but I am super interested in <laughs> yeah, this bad it's case it's gonna be thing. very cool yeah it looks <laughs> awesome um y- y- I'm excited because it seems like this is all coming together. Now, we are, we are recording this now in April. Tell me now what you have done so far to this point and what still needs to be accomplished over these next few months until until June. Because it sounds like you said this is a this is a tight, tight. We got a late start, yeah.
1: um, unfortunately. We, you right. Know, it would have been nice to have those full six years. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. Um, so we are, let's see, we've done, uh, all the wallpaper's been put up and um, all the painting has been done. The painting was interesting. Um, they actually uncovered the original column markers that were hand-painted so those have been restored. Um, the, what was original paint has just been cleaned. What was not original has been color matched and painted. Um, the the seating has is up in uh, Plano where it's all being restored and uh, original upholstery will be reused just cleaned it was filthy and it's been remarkably cleaned hmm. and um the they took us off of technical power in building 30 and so the entire all the rooms had to be completely rewired and that was our longest lead time and that took almost well they're still finishing up right now so it's about four months of work and then we put in um over 16,000 feet of land cabling so we could hook everything together and um so what's when What's next is the um, the summary, di- the timing clock screens are now being put in their new frames, and so they'll be put back in. They're gonna clean the summary display screens. Carpeting is our probably our next big thing, and um, that that's gonna really make the room, it's gonna change the room, it'll really be cool. And then from there, when the consoles come back at the first part of June, then uh, from there, then all of the artifacts and furnishings and everything will begin to be put in, and we're gonna start testing the uh, projector systems in may so that we make sure all that's working and get all the content going in the clocks and all that so it'll start lighting up in in may okay
0: so, yeah. yeah wow and some
1: of that projections are being tested right now i'm um, just not in not place in, right.
0: so this uh, once everything does come into place i'm imagining you know you're 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 taking me back to this moment in uh in july 1969 um <laughs> you know, the room itself, you know, 1969 was a different time. I'm imagining, you said ashtrays in the, in the, uh, in the viewing room. I'm imagining ashtrays on the console, paper scattered all over. Exactly. Are those all coming back too? Yes. Oh, everything. that's mm-hmm. awesome.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm collecting the old black Skillcraft binders. I'm collecting those, and those will um, have papers put in them. Uh, they're recreating maps that will be put on there. We're getting old coats and jackets that used to hang in the, the, um, the little coat racks. Yeah, we've got a
1: number of donated items that we're making copies of for, you know, to pile on the, on the desk to, you know, because you look at the photos and videos of, of the room and it's just a, it's just a big messy pile of papers for the most part. But, <laughs> but interestingly, interestingly enough, we know what a lot of those papers are. So uh, we're, we're getting those and, and putting them back. Um, and yeah, the ashtrays, and and actually we're doing some vacuuming under the floor today, and they're like, there's there's ash, there's a cigarette. cigarette butts, and there's a whole <laughs> cigarette pack, and you know these things that we can use to to put in place. So it's it's really. And fun our
3: contractor is using that's doing the furnishings is using eBay a lot. I mean they're being very successful on eBay as far as. Cups and lighters, and they even found the rocket coffee pot that was new in the box, oh. and so we have that now. But um, so we're getting that's a that's great technology that we're able to utilize in getting all of these you know these things that will be on the consoles. Yeah,
1: it's really amazing because you know 10 15 years ago if you were doing this restoration project it would be a real hassle to try to come up with some of these items and and thank goodness for ebay now and and you know things have changed
0: yeah just easy access to to find you know historic cup you know it's still in the box boom there it is yeah (laughs) internet is fantastic um you know, this is. I, I just want to take this moment actually to thank you for coming on the podcast right now because it sounds like you're right in the middle of a ton of work, and yet you have decided that it is worth an hour to spend here talking about it. But I really appreciate uh, a) everything you're doing uh, for the uh, for the restoration project, but b) your time today. So that's that's actually I think a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah. and describing so this much. project in detail. I think it really captures. all... Just the amount of work and effort and research, especially, that goes into capturing this moment of history. It's going to be spectacular when it's open to the public, and we can't wait.
3: Yeah, I can't wait for you to see it. See what you think. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to be the first one there. Good.
2: Near the end of Gary's talk with Sandra Tetley and Adam Graves, they discussed how visitors will be able to go to the viewing room of the restored Apollo Mission Control Center and go back in time to see and hear what happened out on that main floor during the historic events of Apollo 11. It's a real nice, immersive experience. They didn't talk much about where that audio came from or how it's been prepared to be part of this show. But I'm going to right now with Ben Feist. He's a web developer by day, with his hands in a number of other online and media projects, including cleaning up the quality of the Apollo 11 Mission Control Center audio. Ben, how does a, a web developer in Canada get involved processing audio from space missions from 50 years ago?
4: <laughs> That's a very good question that I ask myself very often. Um, I think it's, it's really because uh, I'm interested in the history of Apollo. And I spent a lot of time uh, from about 2009 until now um, helping to bring the Apollo missions back to life through real time web experiences. And I built a website called Apollo17.org, which replays uh, that mission in real time from beginning to end, all 302 hours of it. Wow. Um, And that uh, has had many different branches coming off of it. One of which is eventually finding myself on the team that's helping to restore the Apollo Mission Control Room. Tell me, before we get to that, tell me about how you got involved in
2: audio processing at all, your, your technical background that that got you the skills to do this work.
4: Well, I'm by no means an audio engineer. Um, I was out of necessity. Uh, I, I basically got a hold of the Apollo 11 30-track audio, uh, which uh, was painstakingly restored uh, and digitized by a team uh, out of UT Dallas. And which which we've the, heard about
2: before around yes,
4: here. <laughs> yes, I'm sure, in great detail. Uh, yeah. So their, their work was just phenomenal, and I, I uh, managed to get my hands on a copy of this audio, and uh, I was uh, very disappointed to hear that it actually had uh, many audio defects in it, uh, and these defects uh, were fine, I think, for the research that was being done using that audio. Uh, it, you, know, you can still tell what everybody was saying, everything's intelligible, um, but in terms of uh, playing it back for public consumption, uh, it suffered fr- a little bit uh, from uh, having something called wow and flutter, which is a technical term which means speed variations happening, almost like the sound of an opera singer holding a note uh, with a vibrato going up and down at about that frequency was pervasive through all of the audio. Um, did so the you, purposes of? Oh, let me sorry, ask. Did,
2: did you realize those th- that it had, had that just from listening to it? Did, was your ear tuned well enough to tell that?
4: Yes, I think anybody who listened to it would tell you there was something wrong. Uh, it sounded like everybody was worried as they were talking, um, and uh, i like I'm their sure voice some, wavering because they weren't sure
2: right. what they were going to ask.
4: Yeah, something like that. Uh, And so, you know, after knowing about this audio since that it existed since 2014, and finally getting my hands on it in late 2017, um, I was very disappointed and had to come up with a technical way to solve this problem. Um, And my background is in software engineering, um, and so I would I just approached it like a programming problem. And, you know, sort of Googled my way through what's out there that can solve these kinds of problems and there isn't a lot. Um, and I began a journey of trying to figure out a way to technically solve it, which I'm happy to tell you about if you're interested.
2: Yes. Well, and, and first, I, I, before I get there, what was it that, ter- that made you aware that this stuff existed in the first place? I, I think you said in 2014 you knew about it, but how did, how did that happen?
4: Well, when I was doing the restoration work on Apollo 17, I had a deep-down fear that there might be some other person out there doing the same <laughs> thing. So I, I began writing a series of blog posts on a personal website that just told people, hey, I'm doing this step-by-step, uh, step, and each step took several years. Um, and I was contacted by the people, uh, by Dr. Hansen and by uh, Doug Ord, uh, somebody who works in the University of Maryland, uh, professor there, um, who approached me basically saying, "Hey, how have you solved the time problem of when did these analog tapes uh, play in the back at the right speed? When did things occur on these tapes?" And they started an email thread with me way back in 2014. Right. And they explained about this 30-track audio that they were attempting at that point. I don't think they'd even started uh, to digitize. And uh, and so I, as soon as I found out that it existed, I of course wanted a copy.
2: Okay, you're then you're going to tell me about how you corrected or or fixed, if you will, the wow and flutter that you were hearing, starting with the Apollo seventeen to, uh, the, the Apollo eleven tapes.
4: Yes, the Apollo eleven tapes uh, were what this was all done on. Um, essentially, the each of the tapes is a thirty track tape, and track one of each of these tapes has a time code on it in a format called IRIG. So an iRig timecode signal sounds like dial-up modem sounds. <laughs> it's just sort of this audio buzzing noise uh, that you, know, you can't make heads or tails of. Right. Um, but I wanted to know what time things occurred. So I needed to figure out how to decode this iRig timecode in a digital format. So basically process that sound through a piece of software that I could write. That would then tell me what time it was at every given point in the tape. Um, so I wrote that software, the Irig time, sorry, I always say Irig because I only ever read it, but everybody mm-hmm. else I've ever heard say it says Irig, so yeah. i have to try to remember that. Um, so I found the spec on what that time code uh, consists of, and it's actually quite a primitive signal that uh, a Joe Blow like me could actually figure out and understand. It's not a very complicated, uh, you know, multiplex signal of any sort. It has very basic timing information in it. Um, so I wrote a piece of software that did that and it pulled that information out and it told me that the tapes were being played at the wrong speed. They varied uh, almost by 45 minutes over a 16 hour tape. Um, and that, this is a natural problem to have when you're dealing with analog equipment especially when there's only one machine in the world that can play these tapes back. How do you determine what speed it was supposed to be playing that and, back at?
2: And you're able to tell that there was a discrepancy because the iRig time code wasn't matching up with how long it took you to actually play the tape out?
4: That's correct, so it, because these uh, tape recordings had been turned digital by digitizing them, the digital audio files definitely had a known length and the time that was coming out was running off at a very different speed than the actual digital files. Um, and the, the real uh, breakthrough was understanding that the signal itself of the iRig time code contains a carrier wave. This, this carrier wave is a tone that's supposed to always be playing at one kilohertz. And it's a simple sine wave tone. And you could look at uh, the flutter and wow in the tape to see that that wavered above and below one kilohertz um, Hmm. very regularly. Almost three times a second was the flutter, and the wow was a very long time period um, shift in speed that I was just describing that made the time code be way off.
2: And we think that the Um, cause of this is the mechanical playback when when the tapes were digitized.
4: Well, this is, you know, me sitting in my basement in Canada trying to imagine what could have caused this. I don't know anything about uh, tape machines or what it takes to make them work properly, but I was imagining um, some sort of flywheel balance problem that could have been spinning and causing a a wobble or a warble to be introduced. And uh, perhaps older motors or parts of the machine that weren't working the way they originally did that make it play back at at a long period, different rate
2: and you were attempting software to compensate for whatever was causing this
4: yeah luckily I didn't have to become a mechanical engineer to to try to fix the (laughs) machine the digitization was already finished so I had to try to make do with what was there and this carrier wave became the key to the entire thing that the what I could do is write software with another gentleman uh, who I found who had written very similar software uh, and he lives in Europe Um, and he he basically said, if we can figure out each sample of this time code, if we figure out how far off that carrier is from one kilohertz, that we can create a fingerprint that is a corrective fingerprint for the speed variation, the flutter and the wow for this entire tape. So sample by sample, you go through each, and for people that don't know what a sample is, it's essentially a, a digital frame of information that if you glue these together, it becomes sound. So each frame of information of the sound, we could check what the uh, actual um, frequency was of the carrier and say that this sample needs to be sped up or slowed down by this amount. This amu- amount. Right. And, uh, and we did that, processing each of the uh, 11,000 hours of audio. Um, so we in pieces In pieces that were how long? 16 hours in length, uh, each I'm, track would- of each tape is 16 hours in length
2: and when you were examining them were you examining them at say one second's worth
4: or or one half seconds worth or, or what in order to make that uh, judgment? No, at, at 8000 uh, frames per second at 8000 samples per second we could look at that carrier and, and you were tell it to adjust
2: and you were at, at each one of those 8000 frames
4: that's right wow yeah, a, this is not something that can be done manually no. of course you, you uh, set your computer to work and you go have a coffee and you stare impatiently and wait for the result and then open up the result and have a look and lo and behold the carrier wave was flat at one kilohertz uh, and if you did an analysis of the time code, uh, we reduced that variance to less than two seconds over 16 hours Terrific. of speed variance
2: my goodness can you and then when you played it back did it
4: make a big difference in your ear to hear it a huge difference. Um, it essentially turned it into from something that sounded very far away and in the distance to something that sounds like it was played much more recently um you know everybody's tone of voice is their actual tone of voice because we know that uh this is the the exact speed that the tape was recorded at um, based on the very accurate time code that was being laid onto track one so that so the important thing to think of here is that is that track one carrier is what gave us the fingerprint but we could write the corrective resampling to every adjacent track on each 30-track. So even if an adjacent track was silent or had huge gaps if nobody's talking in it, mm-hmm. even the part that was a gap is respeeded and corrected and has flutter removed from it.
2: So that the finished product, all 30 tracks, are still have their integrity in terms of their, their time relationship to one another. That's correct. Wow. That's neat. And, and for <laughs> yeah. anybody who may have heard some of that in our earlier podcasts, um, we, we used that corrected version. That's what you were hearing. And it, uh, it really did sound like they were people talking today.
4: Yeah, and I think if the, if the machine was new and it was 1970, say, and we were playing those tapes back, that's what the machine would have played back for us to mm-hmm. digitize if digitization existed in 1970. <laughs> right. Now, now, from
2: the from the point of having done that, and you've got this great sounding audio, how did you then get connected to the NASA work in restoring the the, the 1969 era Mission Control Center here, the Apollo Mission Control Center?
4: Well, that's that's an entirely uh, unrelated and crazy story okay. um, of uh, myself. Uh, getting a job at NASA. I now work at Johnson Space Center in Houston. Um, And uh, that is because of the work I did on Apollo 17, eventually slowly leading to me uh, being given an opportunity there. So I'm very excited about that, and it's something quite new. Um, But uh, when I, Jerry Griffin, who was one of the flight directors on Apollo 11, I got to know him, uh, and he said, you know, if you're going to Johnson Space Center, there's somebody you should meet. Uh, and that somebody is Sandra Tetley. So I didn't know who Sandra was or what she was working on and I met her uh, and I told her about this work that I was doing and she said, oh my goodness, can you please help with uh, helping us to make the mocha restoration as historically accurate as we possibly can? And I said, of course I would. That sounds like a dream. And tell tell
2: me about your role in that. What have you been
4: doing? Well, um, I helped to. So this is again related to the 30 track. I was part of the team that made the recent film called Apollo 11. Um, and that film uh, used this restored 30 track audio. Um, uh, a gentleman named Stephen Slater from the UK uh, used this audio to add sound to the previously silent 16 millimeter footage that was shot in Mission Control. So we have. Um, we'd be able to figure out who somebody was and uh, roughly when the silent footage was shot in mission control. and We could say, hey, wait a minute, that's the F- flight dynamics officer and it's about seven hours after launch. And because I had corrected exactly the speed of each of the tapes and decoded the time code from the IRIG channel, here, it's sort of a wayfinding capability to go to, give me the flight dynamics channel at this time, and he painstakingly lip synced up the audio that was in that thirty track recording yeah. with the silent footage, um, and that that bring you know the moviegoers were basically going, how come I've never seen any of this before? <laughs> and I said, well, it didn't exist before this. There was uh, no before. That's right. So that so when I told uh, Sandra about that work that on the sixteen millimeter film that now had audio to it, and the fact that all the sixteen millimeter footage from Apollo Eleven had been rescanned for the film. Um, and we were able to then scrub through uh, the 16 mil film and determine what happened in the mission. What was on the desks, what was on the screens, what were people saying right. at every step of the mission to try to help make sure that the moker was exactly being restored to what it looked like.
2: Now, you've posted that restored audio out in a public website too, where anybody can see it, without having to come to Houston.
4: Uh, yes, not quite yet. I've uh, not quite finished this okay. website, but it's uh, it's going to be launched in June, and uh, it's essentially the same thing that I did for Apollo 17, a real-time recreation of the mission, but it's the real-time recreation of all of Apollo 11, and during the Apollo 11 anniversary, uh, the general public will be able to go to this website, open it up, and drop in on history and see what was going on in the mission right now, what Photos are being taken by the crew. Where, what uh, stage of the mission are they in? You know, are they walking on the surface, or are they uh, during a sleep period? It's all going to be real time, uh, and it's essentially this direct way to experience uh, the mission. And part of that, this time, what Apollo 17 didn't have, I have all of 11,000 hours of mission control audio now synchronized to exact mission time. Right. That will you'll be able to open up a panel and. Click on any position in Mission Control and hear what that person was both saying to the people in their support rooms and what were they listening to from other controllers to really unravel how did Mission Control operate during Apollo 11.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. I really hope you enjoyed uh, both of these conversations about uh, restoring the Apollo Mission Control Center. Very exciting stuff. And uh, actually, we're about to open it up to the public here very soon, later this month. You can check out our Apollo page. Uh, Houston, we have a podcast, has a page dedicated to the 50th anniversary of Apollo. This episode will be one of them, but we've also gone into depth, especially with that talk with uh, Ben Feist. We, t- we went into uh, a deep couple of episodes called The Heroes Behind the Heroes of the actual process of recovering that audio. I hope you check those out on that Apollo page. Otherwise, you can see what else is going on here at the Johnson Space Center at nasagovernor slash johnson. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, the Johnson Johnson Space Center. You can see some of the photos uh, once uh, they actually open the exhibit of uh, the rollout of some of the what, what you can actually check out here at the Johnson Space Center of the Apollo Mission Control Center. Uh, if you have any questions for us, use the hashtag Ask NASA on your favorite platform. Submit your ideas. Make sure to mention Houston. We have a podcast. We might bring it right here on the show. So this podcast was recorded on April third, twenty nineteen. Thanks to Nora Moran, Alex Perryman, Greg Wiseman, and Pat Ryan. Thanks again to Mrs. Sandra Tetley, Dr. Adam Graves, and Mr. Ben Feist for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.